Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. I think that song the choir sang is one that's out of the music for next week, correct? I said pray for the children's choirs and do that tonight, but we'll also pray for the adult choirs for next Sunday night as we continue in our time of, of celebration of the Advent. Today I want to talk about the Magi. I want to talk about the wise men. A lot of us, um, and such, I kind of asked the question in my title, are you wise? You know, a lot of us, as we saw on Wednesday night, and one of our Sunday classes did the same thing at one of their Christmas parties, but we saw on Wednesday nights, so we're talking about the clarity of Scripture, we saw that a lot of our understanding around the uh, Christmas story, the first Christmas story, comes not from the scripture, but comes from songs, plays, movies, all, all sorts of different ways. Uh, we always just have this concept of, of various things built in our mind that may or may not be actually from the scriptures. And so Wednesday night, in talking about the clarity of scripture, we talked a little bit about what the scripture says and what culture through songs is said, and I, I gave a little test. And they took the test, and most of them wouldn't admit what they made on it. But nobody said they got them all right. So I know that was uh, uh, the case. And, of course, when I first did it, I didn't get them all right either, sadly. But anyway, it's important that we get a grasp of the Christmas story. You know, a, a Scottish writer, a guy by the name of Andrew Fletcher, once made this statement. He said, let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes the laws. Now, what he was saying is it doesn't matter what the laws are. If I can write the songs, I can get it in the people's minds, their way of thinking, and, and I will control the land. I will control the people. It's not a whole lot different between teaching theology and writing the songs. Most of our theological understanding, most of our biblical understanding comes through the songs that we have sang through the years. Some of them are really good, and that's good. Some of them aren't necessarily as factual as they, we would hope that they would be. I, I always cringe when we sing, and we didn't sing it today, and I don't think we're going to sing it. We're not going to sing it, are we, Jeff? You don't even know what I'm saying. But one of the songs is, you know, We Three Kings of Orient are, travel so far. Well, there's no indication, as we'll talk about in a minute, looking at Matthew chapter 2, there's no indication that they are kings. As a matter of fact, I'll quote Luther in a minute, to his statement on it, that kind of shows they probably weren't kings. But we write the songs, we get all sentimental, sentimentally attached to the songs, and that becomes what we think about when we think about the Christmas story. Uh, several people have asked others, nobody asked me, but several people have asked others, why are the wise men on the piano instead of down in front today? Well, this is a manger scene. This is the stable scene, Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. To the matter is, the wise men, according to, to uh, uh, the scripture, were not at the manger, as we'll see in a minute as we read this. They came later. Matthew records the coming of the wise men because he wants to emphasize the kingly nature of Jesus. Luke records the shepherds and the manger because he is emphasizing the coming of Jesus in, in that moment, in that time. But most people, if you ask them, where do you find the story about the shepherds and the wise men, they will say either Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
Or they'll say, well, it's at least in Matthew and Luke. And the truth of the matter is, Matthew talks about the wise men. Luke talks about the shepherds. They're never brought together in one account of the birth, of one account of the infancy of Christ. And the reason is because they didn't come at the same time, and they emphasized two different things. Both are true. Both happened. They just didn't happen simultaneously, as most of our songs and pageants or plays uh, tend to uh, present it. Okay. Enough of my killjoy for today. I, kill, I did a little killjoy last week, did a little killjoy today. Hear, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 2. Listen carefully at what Matthew says, because his words are very specific. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now Herod, the king, heard this, and he was troubled, along with all of Jerusalem. Now they were troubled for two different reasons. One, Herod was troubled because here was a threat to his kingship. Here was a threat to his throne. The people were troubled because if there's a threat to Herod's throne, Herod's going to be mean to them. And so they're troubled because Herod's troubled. It's just kind of a chain reaction there. Gathering together, verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah is to be born, was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. It's the prophet Micah that we looked at last week. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi together and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And coming into the house, not the stable, not the manger, coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, the kingly... uh, element frankincense an incense that's used in worship of God and, and also myrrh which is used for death even in these gifts there's a prophecy of that which is yet to come and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod the magi left for their own country by another way magi wise men coming from the east, not in Israel, not in Jerusalem area. They were coming from a faraway land. There's not a whole lot that's told about them in Scripture. Again, most of what we know about them, or we think we know about them, comes from songs and and pageants. Their names and dwelling place is kept from us. Now, I know later on there's some names that are given to to the three wise men that come, but of course, Scripture doesn't tell us there are three wise men that come. Just says there are three gifts that are brought. Very well could have been a multitude. As a matter of fact, it could have been a whole, a whole 
passel of people, using a good Alabama term, just a whole bunch of people that came with those men as they came to, the, to see the Christ child. We're only told they came from the east. Could have been from, they could have been Chaldeans, they could have been Arabians, they, they could have been any, from any number of places that, that sat on the eastern side, and, and we don't know where they're from because Scripture doesn't tell us. Everything is just speculation beyond that they came from the east. We don't know how they knew about the Christ being born. We don't know how they knew that, that this star was a special star of the one who was to be born king of the Jews and ultimately be the savior of his people. Perhaps they had learned about the prophecies about Christ from the ten scattered tribes that had gone into captivity and had been taken into those lands like Babylonia and other places. And they had they'd heard that. Perhaps they learned it from Daniel's prophecy when he was in exile there, we, we have no way of knowing how they knew it. We just know that they did. We don't really know a lot about their station in life. The, the song, We Three Kings, indicate that, that they are kings of some sort, and, and our nativity scene has crowns on their head. But quite honestly, it never says they are kings. It just calls them magi, which is a word literally that means those who study the stars and, and, and kind of dabble in the natural sciences. I love what Martin Luther said about the matter of the Magi. This is what he said in his Christmas book. He said, we can see from this text in Matthew's gospel that these wise men were not kings or princes, but merely honorable men like our own professors and preachers. Herod treated them as subjects when he commanded them to go to Bethlehem and bring him word. He would not have done this if they were kings or lords. He would have invited them in to dine with him and would have accompanied them on their way with royal treatment. For all history say that Herod was a smooth man who observed the etiquette of the courts. In other words, if they had been kings or lords or or some kind of royalty that came, uh, Herod would have greeted them as an equal. Instead, he gave them orders. He said, you go, find him, and come back and tell me where he is so I too can go and worship him. Somewhat of a nefarious uh, statement that he makes there so the first thing we see about this is we just don't know who these wise men are the second thing it shows us so i think that's quite clear and it kind of brings an element of surprise to us if we're honest and what it shows us is that we can't always be certain where we're going to find christ people we, we always assume they're going to be found in, in little conclaves. Most of us feel like you're really going to find Christ's people in the United States and really nowhere else. But these were men who had studied the prophecies somehow, had looked for the coming of Messiah, and they came to find the one who was the king. Jesus made it clear uh, in, in John 10, 16, that I have sheep that are not of this fold, that is not of Israel. I'm going to bring in people to Christ, to myself, from around the other peoples and nations and languages and tongues from across the earth. This is just the beginning of that great truth that Jesus would speak of later on in his ministry. Sometimes we find servants of Christ in places where we just would not normally expect to see them. Third thing about these verses I think that are quite interesting is that these verses teach us that it's not always those who have the greatest religious privileges who give Christ the most honor. Look at this. You've got the Sanhedrin here. You've got the scribes and the Pharisees. You've got the the people who are the the studiers of the law. And and Herod called them together. 
And he asked them, where is it that he's going to be born? Where is it that this one who has been called the Christ, the King of the Jews, is going to be born? And, and they said, well, it's going to be in, Jer- it's going to be in Bethlehem. Uh, Micah, the prophet, prophesied that out of that tiny little village, David's hometown, that that's where the, the Christ was going to be born. And, and you would think that those who had studied the prophecies, you would think that those who had the religious privileges of being the leaders of the religious world, who, who by at least claimed to have been looking for the coming of Messiah, looking for the king, would have been the ones who would have gone to find him. We would have thought that the scribes and the Pharisees would have been the first to hasten to Bethlehem, beating even these wise men there to see if they could find this one who was born, because the rumor was that the Savior was born. But no, no, they don't, they don't do that. They're so caught up in their own religious ritual, they're so caught up in their own tradition that it virtually eclipses the truth of the living God being born. One of my favorite pictures is that, in thinking about how we sometimes get sidetracked in our walk with Christ. Do you know what that is? Shout it out. It's an eclipse. It's not just an eclipse, it is a solar eclipse. Uh, the black part is, is the moon that's come between the earth and the sun, and it's, it's blotting out the sun. And, and if you're ever in a place where that type of eclipse takes place, even though you see a little ring around it and, and something, it appears as though the sun has completely gone out. You, you can't see the sun. The, the earth becomes dark in the place where there's a complete solar eclipse. There's, there, there's all sorts of things. In history, all sorts of fears that came about when a solar eclipse would come because they feared that, that the sun had died and gone out. They'd never see light again. Well, they only had to wait around for a few minutes and it came back. But many times in our own walk with Christ, just as these religious leaders were, we let our traditions and we let our, we, we let our religious routines and we let the way we've always done things kind of get in between us and seeing the Christ. And, and, and it looks as though maybe God is just gone. It looks as though Christ has disappeared. There's, there's just no visible working of Him in our lives. It seem. There's no warmth that's coming from our relationship with Him. And, and we kind of come to the conclusion sometimes, well, God doesn't care. God's not there. Maybe God's died or, or maybe God's power has been diminished. Never happens. Listen, if you look at that, you could really believe that the sun is no longer there. But the sun loses no power. The sun loses no brilliance. The sun loses none of its attributes when an eclipse takes place. It's just blocked for a period of time. I'm convinced that these religious leaders were so involved in what they saw as their religious duties that they were afraid to look beyond that for the coming of Christ. They feared for their own authority. They feared for their own sway over the people. And many times in our lives, eclipses take place spiritually in our life. Oh, we know Christ. We are in Christ. We know that we have a relationship with Him by faith. We've trusted in Him. And we know the Scripture says if you believe in your heart, as we as we demonstrated by baptism this morning, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Scripture makes that, Paul makes that very clear in Romans. But sometimes, 
just seems that the power's gone. Sometimes it just seems like the, the warmth of that relationship has gone away. It hasn't gone away. It's just that you, like these religious leaders, have let something get in the way of seeing him and seeing his glory and seeing his majesty and seeing his power and seeing him as the wise men did when they came to that, to, they came to that stable and they worshipped him. Sometimes we let things eclipse our vision of God in our life, our vision of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Sometimes we love the world so much and the things of the world, we get so caught up in them that they keep us from seeing Him in all of His glory. It took Three, it, it took some unknown strangers, I almost said three. It took some unknown strangers. See, I'm just as bad as you. It took some unknown strangers from a distant land who were the first to come and really worship him uh, after he had grown a bit. The shepherds came immediately. They came later. You know what? I, I, I shared this last Sunday night, if you were here for our prayer time, but I... I think the thing that brings about the eclipse in our life spiritually more than anything else is that when we, when we come to a point in our life where we just really lose our first love. You know, if you look in the book of Revelation, those seven letters to the churches of Revelation, uh, John is writing the, the, the Revelation, and Jesus is actually speaking to him and said, I want you to write these letters to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And he comes, to, he comes to that church at Ephesus. Now, if you remember Ephesus, we studied Ephesus several years ago. Ephesus was a, a strong church. Paul planted it. Paul gave great praise to it. They understood the doctrine of salvation fairly clearly. They, they seemed to be doing all right. But in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, John writing, he says, you know, I, I know your deeds. And I know your toil and your perseverance, and that you will not tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have, grown, have not grown weary. Sounds like a pretty good church, doesn't it? They're very active. Their deeds are good. Their doctrine's right. They don't, they don't tolerate evil or sin. They, they deal with it. So, so their, their, their doctrine's right, their lifestyle's right, their, their, their discipline is right within the church, it sounds like. But Jesus says this, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. You love the doctrine more than you love me. You love the deeds more than you love me. You love being able to be seen as persevering more than you love me. And I think when we lose our first love, when our love, our burning love for Christ begins to diminish, just like an eclipse, it blocks the power of God, blocks the presence of God, blocks the glory of God in our life. And we may have all the right doctrine, all the right deeds, and all the right things, but if we're not loving Him first, then the eclipse will become a reality. 
These verses make it very clear, even from Matthew's gospel that we're looking at with the wise men, they make it very clear that there may be knowledge of Scripture in the head and no grace in the heart. There, there may be knowledge of the Scriptures in the head, but no grace in the heart. No, notice how Herod sends to inquire of the priest and the elders, where is he to be born? And they didn't, they didn't hesitate. They didn't say, Herod, we're going to go study that and we'll get back to you. They said, oh, born in Bethlehem, because Micah said this. They had studied the Scriptures. The Scripture was in their head. They knew it. There was no grace in their heart. They gave a ready answer to Herod where the Christ child was, but they didn't light out after, after the, to Bethlehem to see if they could find him to worship him. Be careful. When Jesus said, you know, and the scripture says that we're to love the Lord our God, we're to love Jesus Christ with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our will, our strength. We're to love him with a total person. There, there's to be that intellectual side of it where we know the truth, but there's to be that side where our will says, I will worship, I desire to worship. There's that side where our emotions say, I love you, Lord Jesus, more than I love anything else in this world or any religious duty or anything else. Lord, I love you. They were content to be religious. They were content to know the truth, but not live the truth. Listen, these magi in contrast with the religious leaders in Israel that day, these magi give us a splendid example of spiritual di diligence. They, they traveled, I think the song did get this right, they came from afar, not a fire, afar, and uh, we are in Kentucky, we've got to clarify thinking here they came from way off they probably transfer and Alabama too okay they probably transversed all sorts of terrain they probably went through all sorts of weather they they were following they were diligent they wanted to find the Messiah they wanted to find this one who was king showed diligence and they showed faith they're a striking example of faith. They believed in Christ when they had never seen him. They believed in Christ when they didn't even have the benefit of being in Israel and hearing it all the time about a Messiah that was yet to come. They had heard it somehow in a far and distant land from either the ten tribes or Daniel or whatever. We don't know how they heard it, but they did hear it and they believed in him even though they did not know everything about him and they'd never seen him. That's not all. They believed in him when even the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, even when they were unbelieving, they believed. And further, they believed in him when they saw him. As a little infant, a small child, at his mother's knee. It was at least weeks, could have been months before the Magi arrived. Before they arrived where Jesus was, in the house there where he was, but when they did get there, they believed. They believed as they traveled, they believed as they searched, and they believed when they got there. And what did they do? It says they fell down and worshipped him. They fe verse 11, they fell to the ground 
and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and they gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Treasures. Valuable things. I've always found it interesting that at Christmas, we, we focus on giving gifts to one another. That's a human invention. There in the time of the first Christmas and days that followed, they came and they gave their gifts to Christ. It might be that we've let the culture, and even the church culture, so eclipse the purpose of this season, eclipse the purpose of Advent, that it blocks it out and gets it so turned inward. I saw a Christmas card this past week, and I, don't, I wouldn't use it because I don't use, quote, pictures of Jesus since we don't have any. Uh, but it had, had a picture of uh, an expression of what somebody thought Jesus looked like, and the Christmas card just said, hey, guys, it's all about me. And, and that's kind of how we approach Advent. It's all about me, not about him. It really is all about him. He's the only one in all of creation that could, can honestly say, this season is all about me. It's the only one. So we come to this story. It's, it's about worship. It's about falling on the ground, falling before him and worshiping him. It's about saying to him, Lord, I love you more than I love all this stuff. I love you more than I love all this religion. I love you all that I, than I love all the, the, the trappings that go along with it. Lord, I love you, my first love. The love that was shown to me. The love that called me out of my sin, out of my darkness into your glorious light. I guess the question stands from the sermon title. Are you wise? Are you wise like these wise men, these magi, were wise? Are you wise because you're, you're not focusing on self, but you're focusing on Him? Are you wise because you're, you're falling and worshiping Him, acknowledging Him for who He is, not letting everything in the world eclipse Him in your life? As we come to this time of year, what is our focus? I don't, I don't, mean, it's, I don't mean in here. What is our focus when you leave out of here and go back to your home? What is your focus at work tomorrow or at school tomorrow? What is your focus in your everyday life? Is it what I can get? What I can get for myself? Or is it that I might know him? That I might know him and the power of his resurrection who was born on that first Christmas day, who lived a perfect life, who died for my sin and rose from the dead. That I may know him, as Paul said, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Being conformed even to his death, that I may know him. Let me ask you to do this. Here's the test. Here's the exam. Would you simply ask yourself, 
this morning and beyond this morning. Is there anything in my life that is eclipsing my walk with Christ? Is there anything in my life, and what is it, Lord? Ask Him to show you. As, as David said, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought. Show me what's there, Lord. What is it in my life that's eclipsing my seeing the glory and the power and the majesty and the love of Christ in my life? Only you can answer that. And only you can answer that between you and him. It's not a matter of, of, of me knowing it. It's a matter of what you do in your, in your relationship, you do in your, in your prayer time, you do in your personal worship and in your corporate worship with him. What is it that's eclipsing him? Maybe it's a sin that you just refuse to let go of. Maybe it's a conflict with a Christian brother or sister. Maybe it's a conflict within your own family. And it's eclipsed. You know, Peter said that if we're not right with our spouse, our prayers will be hindered. Maybe it's that relationship that's not right that's eclipsing God's work in your life. I just want you to ask that. I want you to think about that. pray. Let's pray together. Father, these men were wise because you opened their eyes. These men were wise because you planted with them a desire, within them a desire to seek and find the Christ child. It's the work of your Holy Spirit the work and the power of, of your Holy Spirit that wasn't just for them 2,000 years ago, but is real for us today. Father, pour out your Spirit in a mighty way upon our lives that we might be wise for you. Father, make known your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.